We could pull off worship beautifully. Uh, just amazing. Uh, wonderful. Uh, it's been a few weeks now that I have wanted to say this before I begin the, the word and uh, put it off. But I'd just like to say um, that I've been thinking about this one word. It's just one word, but it's a word that um, has afflicted a lot of people, this, this one word. And that's the word stronghold. I'm not sure whether you have done some research into this word, stronghold. A stronghold is a lie. A stronghold is a lie that you have believed for many years. And the longer you believe in this lie, the deeper the roots go down. It's, it's very hard to cut it off. And so most of us have strongholds in our lives. They are lies. They are lies. They are not words from God. They are words from the devil that we have embraced and we have believed to be true for ourselves. And uh, so many of us are afflicted in one way or another. And this perhaps is the most major reason why a lot of churches are limping instead of growing and marching forward strongly and confidently. A lot of churches are just limping because a lot of Christians are believing in lies about themselves that the devil says about them. And so the longer you have believed in this, the harder it is for you to, to extricate yourself out of it. So I just want to warn us all, including myself, of strongholds in our lives. Uh, I don't want to say more than that because I want you to sniff them out yourself. So, <clears throat> you know, in First Corinthians, Paul says that Christ has given us the power to pull down strongholds. So it is within us. The power of God is within us to pull those strongholds now down. But in order to, to do that, you've got to identify what those strongholds are. So I just want to leave it like that with you. And you take it away and you ask the Lord to help you discern what are some things that make you so fearful, so anxious, so debilitated in your life. You could do so much for God, I know that. I used to know a girl who is able to play the piano, and she plays it very well, but never once through her whole time in this church. <clears throat> She's gone now. <clears throat> Was she ever found behind a keyboard? <clears throat> she didn't want to make a fool of herself. Uh, wow, what's that? Why is there such a big fear that she, makes, she made a fool of herself? <clears throat> this, this, my throat is dry for some reason. Uh, yep, now I've got a, Gloria has got a drink for me. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> yeah, so, thanks, Chris. So she has been sidelined. And who loses out? Uh, the kingdom of God. The work of the church loses out. Because she's so afraid that she would make a mistake. She, 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 she's a fine player. And we have been deprived of that. So you see how strongholds just incapacitates all of us. It does. It does. So take it away and think about what it is that your strongholds might be. I'd like us to turn to First Peter chapter 2.
We'll look at verse 18 to 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 to 25. Slaves, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for good, for doing good, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted, him, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Now, before I preach, I just want to say that there are lots of kids this morning. I'm not sure if mothers will be all right upstairs, but if you hear them getting a little out of control, uh, one of you might want to volunteer and just run up to give an, uh, a helping hand. Uh, it might not happen, but just... Shall we pray? Lord, we are excited to pause before your word. Um, thank you for the hunger that we do have in our hearts for your word. This hunger must have come from you, Father, because in the natural, we would have no appetite for your word. But, Father, yet you have caused us to have this hunger in our hearts. Lord, we thank you, even for this hunger. So fill us, we pray, and teach us, we pray. Lord, we ask that we might not just tickle our ears this morning, just listening to more things about you. You tell us that we deceive ourselves uh, when we are just hearers of your word and not doers of your word. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Lord, help us to not just hear a word from you, but give us grace to go forth and to touch up what needs to be touched up when we have heard this word. So speak, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, so far in our studies, and we've been going through the, through the book of First Peters, so far in our studies, there has been a consistent theme, and that is this. Peter is telling the people that because you have been freed, because you're no longer shackled or fettered, you need to live in such a way that you become salt and light for your society. Now, I don't need to tell you this morning that our society is fast decaying. It's, it's really a scary thing that we have little children who are going to grow up in a society that increasingly has lost its, its bearings. And 
if the grace of God is not upon us, God, God save our families. It is a hard time to be alive. It is a hard time to be a Christian. Now, if you think that persecution is never going to come to New Zealand, you need to think again very carefully. Things are happen with such rapidity is quite scary. If you're a culture watcher, if you watch culture very carefully, or if you sniff out the writings of culture watchers, it is quite pessimistic. But we shan't go that way because we have the Holy Spirit. We have God. You know how many times I think in the history of this world, six times civilization went to the dogs. But as Chesterton says, all six times they were the dogs that died. And the church survived. And the church carried on. So Peter is on the right track. Peter is on the right track. Peter says, be careful how you live because you can salt your culture. You can salt your world. And last week, if you were here, he told us how to treat authorities with submission. Uh, and as I've said, this is one of the hardest lessons for New Zealanders to learn. Not so for the Americans. The Americans may have other faults, and they do have other faults, but patriotism and submission to authority is not one of them for some reason. But because of our tall poppy syndrome, it's very hard for the average New Zealander to submit to authority. And we were told last week that that is what we should do if we're going to bring salt to our society. And it was a, it was a tough message for all of us, I understand. Uh, I, I could sense how tense it was. <laughs> I didn't enjoy preaching a word like that, but it's in the word of God. And we were told that as long as that person is in a position of authority, we are to submit. Uh, yeah, but that was what was spoken last week. But Peter wants to take us a little further this morning. Today, he wants to tell us that if you were a servant, now none of you are servants here, I know. I don't, I don't see any one of you working as a servant. But he says, if you were a servant, he says, you should know how to respond even when you are treated unjustly by your master. So this is the issue of suffering injustice. It's the issue before us this morning. How do you suffer injustice? We don't want to be doormats. We want to fight back. And last week we saw that by nature we are all rebels. And I mentioned the name of a movie that you know, was there in the 60s or 50s, Rebel, Rebels Without a Cause. And it doesn't take much for us to be rebels. We, we, we don't take authority sitting down. And so it's getting worse today because the issue before us this morning is the question of suffering unjustly and how are Christians to respond to suffering unjustly. And you know something? Peter says it straight out. Look at verse 18. Christian servants are submissive and respectful. Look at verse 19. Christian servants bear up. They bear up under sorrow when they suffer unjustly. Look at verse 20. Christian servants do good when they suffer. Now how hard is that? How hard is that to keep on doing good when you suffer? And then verse 23, Christians' servants do not return evil for evil. The word of God says you are to be submissive, not only to those who are kind to you, for it will be easy. 
It is easy to submit to those who are kind to you, but we are asked to go a a little further. We are asked to submit to those who are unkind, unreasonable, even cruel. Now, you're all not slaves today, as I've said. You're not servants today. But all the same, in your place of work, and I've heard this week of people being treated very unfairly in their places of work. Peter wants us to endure suffering graciously when treated unfairly. In fact, this is the reason why you should submit. You know what it is? You're called to suffer. It's a call. God is calling you to suffer. Now, if you've never heard about this, this is quite a clear message for us this morning. Look at verse 21. Verse 21 is crucial for us this morning. To this you were called. To what? To this you were called because Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Now just think about this for a moment. To this you were called. To what? To suffering. Now I know you've never quite heard it put like that before. When you hear the word called, you think of, well, someone being called to be a nurse or someone being called to be a preacher or someone being called to be a missionary. Have you ever in your life heard someone coming up to you and saying to you, you know what, you have been called to suffer? I don't think you've ever heard anyone quite speaking this way really to you. I haven't. But here, clear as daylight, here it is. Look at verse 21. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is your calling, even if if you have never heard of it before. Now, if you're not sure, if you think I've got it wrong, (laughs) there are other passages in the Bible that say the same thing. Paul says the same thing. For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1, 29, if you're you're taking notes. G.I. Packer once said this, and I quote, It needs to be said loud and clear that in the kingdom of God, there ain't no comfort zone and never will be. And Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. puts it differently. He says, and I quote again, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. This is Martin Luther Jr., Martin Luther King Jr., and he paid his life for, for, for this belief. You see, that finally is the reason why we should submit to injustice, even when the authority is unjust. We submit because God has called us to a life of enduring suffering. We submit because in the face of suffering, we bring God great glory when we take it sitting down. Now, you may be asking, 
how will my responding like that show God up to the world? How will my patient enduring declare the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? It's going to come out this way. Believe it or not, it's going to come out this way. And it is this. We live in a culture where virtually no one suffers injustice sitting down. Virtually no one. Especially not someone who is abusive and unkind to us. It, it rubs against us. It, it goes against your grain. You just don't do that. You just don't take injustice sitting down. No one puts up with that sort of nonsense, let alone bear it patiently and joyfully and enduringly. We are, by nature, vengeful, all of us. We want to get even. We will not be trampled upon. We want to pay back. We want to retaliate. Now, in a culture like that, you're refraining from hitting back. You're joyfully enduring suffering in your place of work. will show God out to be real in your life. And people want to find out, people will want to find out what it is that is in you that makes you able consistently, year in, year out, to be such a person that is so unlike the average person. You bear a very persuasive witness when you respond like that in the face of suffering. The light of Christ will shine out from you. People may not necessarily say a word. They may, they may not verbally command you, but they'll be scratching their head as they go home. They'll be wondering. And if they see enough of that, and if they see that in you consistently, they're going to scratch your head and they're going to ask themselves, what is the secret with that person? Why is she like that? Why is she able to take this, endure this? And you know something? In fact, the Christian is the only person who is able to react this way. Because one, his conscience is bound to God, verse 19. Two, he has been called to this purpose, verse 21. Three, he has Jesus as an, as an example, verse 21. And perhaps more sweetly than all of that, number four, he knows that one day, he will be vindicated. If not today, tomorrow. He knows that finally he can entrust his life in the one who judges justly. Verse 23. Now, at this point, let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought who it is who writes this letter and who writes like that? Have you ever considered his own personal life, what he's, what he's gone through? Was he always like that? Could he always have spoken like that all the time? Now, who is it that writes this letter? Peter, you know it. Now, have you never thought how radically Peter has been transformed himself to be such a person who can say such words, who can write such words? Peter was a fighter. Now, that is to put it very mildly when I say Peter was a fighter. But he was a fighter before he was wonderfully changed. Peter was one of those who will never take anything sitting down. He's not your average spineless wimp who runs away from a fight. Years of being a fisherman, I know I'm not being fair to fishermen here, but 
A lot of writers have said that years of being a fisherman may must have hardened him, uh, made him out to be a very tough person. And so from the stories that we read of Peter in the Bible, I would be very surprised if he didn't always enjoy an altercation. I think he would always enjoy one. Bring it on, he'll say. In fact, the Bible records one incident that showed him out to be what he was before he was transformed. I think you know about it before I even say it, and that is this. Remember when our Lord was arrested? All the disciples fled. It was Peter who drew the sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. He was a Mike Tyson there, cutting off ears of someone he didn't like. So he showed himself to be impatient. He showed himself to be impetuous. He showed himself to be rebellious. He didn't have due respect for the high priest and for his servant. Remember when he was implicated to be one of those who mixed with the Galilean? He stood up, and in all his fury, in all his anger, he swore, and he cursed. You remember that? So that was Peter. So I want to ask one question here. What changed Peter from that rough, swearing, cursing fisherman to be someone who writes slaves, submit yourselves if you are unjustly treated. What's the turnaround? What happened? It must have been something radical. You know what? He saw something that changed him. It was something he saw with his two eyes. Now what did he see? Remember when Jesus was arrested and taken away? One man followed from far. The Bible says Peter followed the arresting crowd. They must have been gone, going through the winding alley or whatever, and you know, someone following behind. And Scripture says he was following from afar. Nevertheless, he was following, even though he might be following from a distance. He was following. And he saw everything, and he heard everything. He saw them abusing our Lord. He saw them insulting him, mocking him, taunting him. He saw them manhandling him. He saw them spitting at him, striking him on his face, beating him, and then having him blindfolded and getting him to guess who hit him right across his face. Peter saw all this. You know something? He also saw something else. He saw that never once did Jesus fight back or spit back. But instead, as verse 23 says, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So Peter saw with his own eyes Jesus enduring suffering while doing good. He sees Jesus taking it all, sitting down, absorbing it all into his own body, and never once cursed, never once spit back or resisting. This is the heart of Peter's transformation. What he saw that evening turned him around to write something like that. And this is why Peter this morning points us to Jesus. Peter says, unless you two look at Jesus, 
you're never going to get it right. Look at how many times he says it. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Look at verse 22. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. Look at verse 23. While he was reviled, he reviled not in return. He uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to his father. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He wants us to look at Jesus because he was transformed looking at Jesus. So the question, how did, Jesus how did Peter change? He changed as a result of looking at Jesus. I have a second question for you this morning, and that is this. If Peter was transformed like that, how may you and I be transformed? Let's, let's bring it home. Let's bring it to where the rubber hits the road. At our own time, in our own places of work, within our families, there are strifes, there are disagreements. How could we respond in such a way that we show ourselves to be transformed? Well, we have seen that suffering is a necessary part of the Christian life, but I want to push this home. Paul says it quite brazenly. Paul says that these are new believers, and Paul is talking to new believers. Paul says, through many tribulations and trials, you will enter the kingdom of God. That means none of us enter the kingdom of, kingdom of God without a scar. Wholesome. Something must be quite wrong. If on that day, you went into heaven and you were found to be without scars, without suffering. Paul wants, to think, Paul wants us to think that something is very wrong if you make, make it to heaven wholesome. And you know something? All this is supposed to be Christianity 101. Suffering for Jesus. Paul says it again in 1 Corinthians 3, that Christians are destined for suffering. Did you know that? He says, do not think it strange when fiery ordeals come upon you. And then again in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And then again in Romans 8.16, we are fellow heirs if we suffer with him. The Bible seems to be very clear about this. God has one appointed way only to glorification, and that is our suffering. In fact, Jesus says, he who seeks his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. I've been made to feel very grateful this week. Looking at all the Christians, my brothers and sisters in Mosul, Iraq, many of them have been beheaded, even this week as we speak. Many of them have been driven from the only places of habitation they ever knew. If they would not sign a decree to convert into Islam, they're just put to death. 
Many women were raped in front of their husbands before they were killed. And I look at my life here in Palmerston North. It just fills me with deep sadness that, that it's so easy to be a Christian here, that we don't think twice of some sacrifices we can make for the Lord and begin making them. Some commitments we must make before Christmas this year. We're not making them. This Christmas will come. Next Christmas will come. It's going to make no difference. Because you're just going to cruise along, and I'm just going to cruise along. And we're all going to go to heaven. And when God says, show me your scars, they just aren't. There's no scars there at all. You know something? God calls us to a life of suffering. We don't fully understand why it is that he should call us to a life of suffering. But this is the life that he has called us. Samuel Rutherford was a 17th century Scottish pastor and theologian. When he was put in the cellar of his affliction, he said, the great king keeps his finest wine there. Not in the courtyard where the sun shines. You know, God makes his best wine out of you through putting you in the grind, getting you to go through the grind, the wine press. Now, how hard it is to be put in a wine press and to be subjected to great pressure. Perhaps the illness of a child, God forbid it, that it should be. But people who have been afflicted with cancer are people who have always looked back and said, I'm so glad that God afflicted me with cancer. I wouldn't change it for one thing. Because sometimes God puts us in a grind, as Rutherford says, because in there, God makes his best wine. And Spurgeon says, it is only people who dive deep in the sea of affliction that comes up with the rarest pearls. And he's right. This is a strange economy of God. I don't pretend that I understand all this. It's a strange economy of God that the people who are afflicted the most grievously are the people who have the deepest joy. Let me take some time to talk about a man whose story reflects this. I may have said this, told this story before many years ago, but if you have heard about it before, you could bear with me, and perhaps God would speak to you afresh. Many of you have heard of the name Eric Little. Little went to Paris Olympics in 1924, secured of a gold medal for the 100 meters sprint. He was the Usain Bolt of his time. He was the best. So the gold medal for the 100 meters sprint was his. But as soon as he came down from the boat and found that his race was to be run on a Sunday, he just quietly declined from running because he had a personal conviction that Sunday was meant for devotion to God. But God honored, God honored Little's refusal to run on a Sunday by giving him a gold medal in a race that he was not perhaps very good at, the 400 meters. 
And he not only won a gold, he broke the world record. But within a year of his Olympic success, he shocked the whole of Scotland by announcing that he was giving it all up. And Eric Little said farewell to Edinburgh, and he deliberately walked away from all that fame and all that glory and all that money that could have been his. Why? Because for some time now, there was something brooding in his heart, the call of God to be a missionary to China with the London Missionary Society following after the footsteps of his own father. And so turning his face away from all that pomp and glory, he set sail for China. And for many years he labored among the Chinese people. He taught science at the Anglo-Chinese school in uh, Tianjin, and he would tackle the odious task. He would tackle the odious task of traveling many miles in rugged terrain on foot and on bicycle to share the gospel of Jesus with the Chinese people. And then years passed, and the war came. And in the weeks just before the bombing of Pearl Harbor, conditions in China deteriorated to such a state that Little had to arrange for his wife and his two little girls to leave China. And there, safe in Canada, Florence Little gave birth to their third daughter, whom Eric was never to see. Because before he could ever get away, he was rounded up by the Japanese army and he was sent to an internment camp in Waisen in 1943. And the months turned into years and there was no getting out. Now I've said before that little before this, long before his captivity, he used to travel all the rugged terrains of China on foot and on bicycle to share the gospel. He was never to travel those miles again on foot and bicycle. Why? Because unknown to everyone except him, a tumor was lodged in his brain, and it was malignant. And on the evening of February the 21st, 1945, 21 years after that God-honoring decision not to run on a Sunday, separated from his wife and children, Eric Little died. He was 43. He hit the finishing tape of his life, deeply wounded, but profoundly rejoicing in his heart that Jesus should save him. But you know something? Just five years ago, something surfaced that nobody on earth knew, not even his own family in Canada. 2008, the Beijing Olympics, which was just five years ago. It was at that time that the Chinese authority released a little piece of information to the little family that was withheld from them for the last 63 years. Now, what might that be? And that is this. The Chinese authorities revealed that little had refused an opportunity to return to Canada. Instead, he gave that place away to a pregnant woman. Whoa. 63 years, no one knew this until five years ago when the Chinese revealed this. Suffering is a badge of discipleship. Every good soldier 
must have wounds, must have scars. Jim Elliot was killed by the Auka Indians. We all know about that. The husband of Elizabeth Elliot. He used to love a poem. He used to love a poem, love a poem, and he kept it in his in his uh, safekeeping. It's called No Scar by Amy Carmichael of India. I'd like to read that poem out to us. Just three stanzas. Has thou no scar? No hidden scar on foot or side or hand? I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Has thou no scar? Has thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers, spent, leaned me against a tree to die, and rent by ravenous beasts that compassed me, I swooned. Has thou no scars? Has thou no wound, no scar? Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are his feet that follow me, but thine are whole. Can he have followed far who has no scar? Can he have followed far who has no scar? You know, Jesus did not call us to suffer sitting on his armchair. Didn't do that. It was Tim Keller who helped us to understand that Jesus suffered infinite, infinite, infinite degree of pain that we don't quite understand. Because we thought it was three hours from 12 noon to 3 p.m. before he gave up his ghost. We thought it's just three hours. But in that three hours, we do know that the father turned his face away from him. And Keller says there is no such thing as three hours in hell. Because if, any, if anyone is in hell, that person is in hell for an infinite period. So it may seem like three hours. But he went through an infinity of hell for your sake, for my sake. In fact, all human sufferings put together will never come close to match up with, to match up with the suffering of Jesus on the cross. Think of Jesus sitting right beside you, the lowest place in your life. Are you broken? He was broken for you. Are you despised? He was despised for you. Have you been sped on? He was sped on for you. Have you been denied justice? He was denied justice. Do you sorrow? He's a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. Have you been betrayed? He was betrayed for you. You know, he laid aside his immunity to pain. He had immunity against pain, but he laid that aside. He entered the world of flesh and blood and tears. He suffered all this so that he can ultimately destroy evil without destroying you. And so he dealt with injustice, he dealt with evil by tasting death 
for you and for me. And the most reassuring thing is this, that at the close of the curtains of history, he will judge all things justly. I want to close now, but I want to ask you a question. And it is a decisive question for you, and that is this. Has your sin been decisively dealt with by you coming to Jesus and saying, I can't do it, I can't hack it anymore. You take it away from me. Have you done that? In other words, have you become a Christian? Have you told Jesus, okay, I stop running now. I I can't take care of stuff. You've gone through it all. You've been through the grill. You've been through the mill. You do it for me. You know something? If you have never done this, then a darker place than all the sufferings put together waits for you. It's a place called hell. Don't go there, please. Don't go there. Confess your sins this morning. Repent of your sins. Embrace Jesus. Make him your savior. And all the sufferings on this life will suddenly become meaningful for you. And you know, you will know that there is a purpose for that. And that is for you to glorify him and prepare you for heaven. Shall we pray? Lord, it's befuddling to us why you should call us to suffer. We don't fully understand this. But here it is clear as daylight. You've called us to suffer. So give us grace to suffer, we pray. Give us grace to understand. Give us grace to comprehend. And give us grace to believe, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.